This is Why Change, the podcast for a creative generation. We are your hosts. I'm Jeff. Hola, hola. Soy Carla. It's Rachel here. What's good, y'all? I'm Ashraf. And I'm Madeline. Why Change is a podcast that brings listeners around the globe to learn how arts, culture, and creativity, especially as applied by young people, can change the world, one community at a time. You're invited each week to learn and laugh while exploring the question, why change? All right, let's get started. Hello, everybody. My name is Carla Estela Rivera, and welcome to the Why Change podcast. I have the honor of being here with Tamara Anderson, who is on the National Advisory Board of the Teaching Artists Guild, co-founder of Black Lives Matter at School, a Teach Truth organizer at the Zinn Education Project, and she moderated a day of purpose decolonizing arts education with Black Lives Matter in schools. I want to welcome you today to the Why Change podcast to talk about this wonderful, wonderful event that you all had this past weekend. How are you doing today, Tamara? Good, good. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. Happy to not be outside in the fake rain or whatever the weather was going to do. I was like, yeah. it literally rained. I was like, is it going to be hell? Then it became 80 degrees yesterday. Oh, are you uh, are you based in D.C.? Where are you, where are you calling? I'm based in Philadelphia. Yeah, so weather was wild. Weather was wild in Chicago, too, but you know, it's interesting because this is, um, this is a time of change, right? You know, it as- is, it is. Mm-hmm. As we enter spring and as we enter kind of this time of year where um, everything is starting to to open up and kind of move into a new era, uh, mm-hmm. it's, 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 you know, I was really kind of moved by the conversation that uh, you all had over the weekend, which is really about bringing very old conversations and kind of bringing it anew. Uh, mm-hmm. and so I would love for everybody to take a listen, uh, to this very important conversation that was had with you and your colleagues that you moderated, which was so lovely. Uh, thank you, thank you. and then we will be right back to kind of break it down a little bit. So, of course, um, this conversation is so important, but I would like to open this up with a quote. Um, It's a quote by Toni Morrison. Uh, It was an article, essay that she wrote actually in 2004, uh, the day after the presidential election when George W. Bush got elected. She, She was feeling, she won't say depressed her word, she was feeling despondent like how what do I do during this time and and what do I do as an artist and what she ends up writing is something that I I use and think about and I think this set this puts us in the place where we're going to be today this is precisely the time when artists go to work there's no time for despair no place for self-pity no need for silence no room for fear. We speak, we write, we do language. That is how civilizations heal. I know the world is bruised and bleeding and though it is important not to ignore its pain, it is also crucial to refuse to succumb to its malevolence. Like failure, chaos contains information that can lead to knowledge, even wisdom like art. So what we saw in 2020 in response to murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery is the country responded in local, natural, national, and global uprisings. It provided such a powerful visual commitment to racial justice. And, I, and this is not to say that we have not seen um, murders, I like to call them police, and military style lynchings um, on the news, through cell phones, through videos being shared. But of course, 2020 was different because we were home. 
on lockdown at the start of a pandemic. So everybody was watching and everybody risked life and limb to hit the streets to make sure that our voices were heard and that we were saying enough is enough. So in the theater community in that same year, there was a letter called Dear White American Theater and we see you White American Theater. And it laid out principles for building anti-racist theater systems. And this included everything from access to hiring um, more black playwrights or more playwrights of color. Um, making sure that there was a quality of life included when you do theater, when you do art. This idea the show must go on in the light of COVID um, was starting to pivot. Uh, it was a challenging, what we have known Broadway to be called the great white way. And then by the summer of 2021, there were nearly 40 anti-history laws either pending or being passed across the US continent. These laws included anything from legislation against trans students and the teaching of history centered on gender and LGBTQIA plus history. It also um, penalized, started to penalize teacher banned books, um, started to see this idea of we can't teach about enslavement, we could teach about this. We can't teach about that because it will make children's feelings hurt. We started to um, really go down the rabbit hole on, in the social media verse of, of mothers or fathers screaming and crying at school board meetings. And we started to see just what fear looks like. And so during this same summer in 2021, Miko Lee, the former co-executive director of TAG, we started talking about should we have, how and should, can we have anti-racist conversations and workshops with teaching artists? Will this type of, will these laws impact funding for the art? And what type of curriculum pieces are already there, whether it be Black Lives Matter School, whether it be Zen Education Project, and even the bigger question is how can teaching artists even begin to prepare to work with these new laws that are actually making creativity and education illegal? So, so this is where we are. And I would like to start off by introducing our panelists. So our first panelist, Ava Thomas, is the Director of Racial and Educational Justice for the North Shore School District in Washington State, where she works to create the institutional conditions that are necessary for justice in education. She is currently a Doctorate of Education candidate in Educational Leadership at the University of Washington and has an MA in Cultural Studies and BA in Community Psychology from the University of Washington, Bothell. She is a Prentice Charney Fellow with the Zen Education Project. Deborah Minkart is the Executive Director of Teaching for Change and Co-Director of the Zen Education Project. She is co-editor of Beyond Heroes and Holidays, a practical guide to K through 12 multicultural anti-racist education and staff development and putting the movement back into civil rights teaching, a resource guide for classroom communities. Sam is currently an organizer with BLM at School National she joined the steering committee in 2019 and states collective value is her favorite of the 13 principles. She has been dedicated to her community throughout her professional career in the nonprofit sector. She focuses primarily on youth, families, reproductive justice, and supporting individuals who have experienced violence. As an advocate, she centers her efforts on those who are most marginalized, which has included youth in foster care, the black community, disabled individuals, LGBTQIA plus youth and adults. She is devoted to creating accessible, inclusive and uplifting environments collaboratively. And the organizations that are represented here, you'll learn more about them as an education project and Black Lives Matter School, and of course, our host for today, Teaching Artists Guild. So, okay, okay, let's get to the conversation. All right, so 
Right, I, I will sing these questions to you. Um, so let's talk about, of course, my notes are all over the place. Wait one second, give me two seconds, give me two seconds. Two seconds to make it look like I'm super organized, which I am. Here it go. So what does it mean to you to decolonize education or decolonize the curriculum? Okay, I can start. Yes, Ava. That's okay. <laughs> All right, I will start. Um, welcome everyone. Thank you so much for having um, us on this panel. For one, I wanna start by um, talking about, so um, Eve Tuck and Wayne Yang wrote a piece called Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. And they're talking about in that piece how it's not some type of uh, metaphoric idea about uh, decolonization, but really it's tangible strategy in moving forward. Like when we talk about decolonization, we're not talking about the hypothetical, we're talking about tangible change um, and dismantling settler colonialism. And in that piece, they also talk about how we can contribute to um, social justice projects. And what that looks like is being unapologetic about our approaches. We don't always have to ask for permission and no time in history have we gotten one step closer to justice or freedom by asking politely. Um, we've always had to be unapologetic about it and build collectives um, of people to come across uh, or across lines of solidarity to work towards that change. Um, also, Lan Beta Simpson um, wrote a piece called Land as Pedagogy. And that's really talking about like what materials are you use, using or teaching about in your classroom? Um, and then it makes me think like, where are you bringing students or where, what are um, aspects of the environment or the land that you're bringing to students, even if you're still inside the classroom walls? And then who are you bringing students to and to students? Um, I really appreciated the land acknowledgement at the beginning. And we also have to recognize that that's just one step. We have to acknowledge the lands that we're on. We have to acknowledge um, the people who first inhabited these lands and recognize that they're still here and they're still thriving. And what does that mean to truly center um, not only them and their voices, but also their ideas and their knowledge systems within our classrooms? And then lastly, I just wanna make the distinction between decolonizing and anti-racism because they run parallel to each other and they're also two separate ideas. So decolonizing is about dismantling settler colonialism and working against genocide of people and land, and then also working towards indigenous sovereignty and indigenous futures. And then anti-racism is about dismantling white supremacy, recognizing that um, anti-racism is inextricably linked to settler colonialism because settler colonialism has always depended on the enslavement um, and profit of people um, and land. And so I just wanted to put those ideas out there. No, thank you, thank you. Those are some wonderful uh, definitions for us to work from. Sam, you want to go? Yeah, as um, they were talking or she was talking, I was thinking about the idea of mirrors and windows and sliding glass doors. And for me, that's what it is. So as I'm in a classroom, where do I see my culture and my community really mirrored back to me at all? Where do I have those opportunities to really see into others' lives in ways that are meaningful, not necessarily in ways that are really surface level? So what is it that I'm engaging with? And then sliding glass doors are those opportunities where I might see something that kind of mirrors me, um, but really is a, a look into the future of what could be. And oftentimes when we're thinking about what we're putting in front of individuals from an education standpoint, it's often the mainline things, which then means majority white, majority those who don't have a disability, majority people who are skinny. And so thinking about that really is, to me, veering from the norm, quote unquote, and thinking about how do we uplift the hundreds of ways that people create families and how do we do that so that it's more than just seeing this one image of family or more than just seeing in a children's book all the animals but none of the people right that for me is really what it is is, is people being able to see themselves and it not be only white norms and um, heteronormative and fat phobic thank you thank you yes yeah, and echo what, what both Ava and Sam said and add that it's, I think a 
system, a colonial system depends on education. And I think that's something that we often forget that the young people aren't born with these racist, greedy, selfish ideas. You know, if we're, anyone's around young children, we are often reminded of just about what generous, life-loving spirits they are. And that, that to believe in a system of scarcity, of hate has to be taught and taught over and over. Um, and so there's actually one lesson that's at the Zen Education Project site that uh, Bill Bigelow wrote called The Color Line. And it looks at the colonial laws mm -hmm. that were put into place to keep people of African descent, indigenous folks, uh, white folks, poor white folks, uh, to keep them apart. And when children learn that lesson, they go, oh, like this wasn't natural. Like this has to, this ha it had to be taught. It had to be um, institute, instituted with laws. And if it had to be instituted, then we can also unlearn it. Um, and I think that that's so a, a decolonizing the curriculum would mean a curriculum that helps young people see how the colonial ideas were institutionalized and therefore how they can be done undone. Um, Rethinking Schools, one of their books in the introduction, it talks about schools being a place that children can either learn or unlearn their power. Mm. Um, and I think that, so a decolonized curriculum would um, help children learn what power collect, going to what Sam's favorite <laughs> principle collectively that they can have. So. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. I think, um, uh, it's so interesting because, so we have the definition of what it means to really decolonize. What does it mean to be anti-racist? Um, we have an image of sliding doors and mirrors. How do we see ourselves? And then we have this, we have this truth about children. How do they enter this world, right? How do they enter this space? And so something I think is, is it brings another question to bring kind of like really going even deeper in that is how do you even decolonize relationships or decolonize what has been taught before? Like, I think a lot of times we sometimes start at the curriculum that is given to us without always providing the why. You know, we make this assumption that people enter into schools and understand all these systems are purposeful and they are races and they are sexist. They are all these different things. When in our reality, it is a normal. It is, it is created in a space to make people think this is what it is. So how do we begin to actually, um, uh, one of my favorite interviews with Toni Morrison, it's gonna be a Toni Morrison day, I'm not gonna lie, she's in my spirit today. But one of the favorite interviews she says, when you take your race away, who are you? What are you left with, right? So how do we start? How do we start? What are some possible strategies, um, not just for teachers, but for families? Like, what are some strategies that this could be step one or two to, to start on this pathway? I'm going to jump in first, if that's okay. Um, I think for me, one of the things I've learned is the reality of your social location and really learning what that means. So not just what is my race, but what is my culture? Um, something I often talk about is people will be like, oh, I'm this culture or that culture. That's true, you have your actual home, maybe your family of origin, but if you're walking down the street in New York, it looks very different than walking down the street in Nebraska. There's still a culture of a community that we all are somehow giving into in different ways. And so it's being able to recognize what are the quote unquote norms that I just take for granted? And what are the ways that maybe when I think about my social location, I often say that I'm an African-American person, but my parents grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, barely post-segregation. So because of their upbringing, it changes how I think about not only my race, but how I think about school systems is so different than someone whose parents didn't deal with segregation in the same way. And being able to start peeling back those layers of, I'm a dark skinned person, I have this look or that look, I'm in this community or that community, and do that throughout time. Because who I was at four, five, six years old as an early adoptee 
versus who I am as a foster parent is still involved in those systems, but now I'm coming at it from a different lens. And I haven't sometimes taken the time to acknowledge that it is my lens rather than it is reality. Thank you, thank you. Anyone else? Ava, I saw. Yeah, I can add to, um, the first thing that came to my mind was shifting power and really being critical about what power is and what power can do. Um, you know, the education system is founded on white supremacy and settler colonialism and um, very top-down power structures that are, you know, if you're at the top of the org chart or if you're the teacher in the classroom or if you're the administrator in the school building, you should have the most power. Um, but, but indigenous ways of knowing would tell us that it's not about having power over people, it's about generating collective power. Um, and so what can that look like in the classroom? And it makes me think about like, do students have opportunities to be the teachers? Um, and not just teachers about like, yes, their own identities and their own communities, but also teachers of the content in the classroom. Um, and what can that look like for them to really feel like they are um, not only like cultural experts, but also content experts um, and bringing in um, that creativity. And if something doesn't work for students, that they have the power and the agency to say that that doesn't work for them um, and to assert what does work for them. And then for the teacher to listen to what that looks like. Um, and so instead of having it be the teacher as the sole bearer of knowledge in the classroom, it's really this collective wealth of knowledge that gets generated. Um, and, and to me, that also means um, centering a radical love. Like at the end of the day, justice is about a radical love of every single person embracing each of our identities and who we are um, as human beings and then as racialized, as gendered um, human beings, et cetera, and thinking about that intersectionality. But at the end of the day, are we centering love? Are we centering the value um, and humanity of our students? And are we breathing that into um, classroom environments and experiences? Oh, thank you so much. And I also realized that love is the opposite of fear, right? It's the very opposite of, it's the, literally the polar opposite of what we're looking for. And I also want to make an announcement really quick. If you have questions, like as this conversation is going on and you have questions that you were like, oh, I, this brought a question to me, please jot it down. Um, Deborah, did you want to add to that? Sure. Just one uh, suggestion in terms of helping break down some of the traditional barriers. Um, in D Washington, DC, where I'm based, uh, we had a project with schools uh, for the beginning of the year where we would work with parents in um, our school year starts in September. So we would work with parents in August to plan a walking tour to introduce teachers to the community where they were gonna be teaching. Because as we know, so often now teachers don't live in the community where they're teaching and that, flip the script because usually at the beginning of the school year, it's teachers, administrators, lecturing parents on what they need to know. Um, and when it the school year began with parents doing literally a, a getting out of the building and doing a walking tour of their community where people lived, what was the history of the neighborhood, what were the local um, stores or local informal or formal leaders, then it put parents um, not just, uh, you know, by, by, um, saying that they should be respected, but they were, they, it generated the respect for the knowledge that they had. And it also broke down some of the reservations that teachers, some, you know, often had heard some of the things that they had quote unquote heard about the neighborhood where they're going to be teaching shifted once they got out into the community and often usually stopped at a place to eat and sort of break bread and, 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 and develop um, relationships there. Um, and then because we have so many artists here, the other activity we've done in schools with teachers at the beginning of the year is to write poetry based on theirs, the poem like where I'm from or, or writing on a cutout of a shoe a footprint, sort of in whose shoes am I walking? And when um, teachers write and share those poems, they often find connections with each other um, and gain strength from that, from, from the ancestors, from those stories that are in the room that that again, overcome some of the negative um, sort of chatter that might exist otherwise. Two suggestions. No, that also um, leads us to the, the, the year long, decade long thing about connection, 
So one of the connections that is often tenuous is sometimes between K through 12 traditional educators and teaching artists or teaching artists and the traditional school space. How are they introduced to that space? How do they build community in that space? Um, especially, how can I say this? I'll just say it, especially when art and music is, is seen as a prep or is seen as a break or rest time um, as far as, as opposed to being a continuation. I'm sure, and I've, and because I, I have worn both hats, I have been a middle school teacher and I have been a teaching artist in a school brought in. And sometimes because I wore both hats, I knew how to navigate the politics enough to make my space welcoming, right? But that is not always the case. Um, and just like what you said, Deborah, about parents and families, this idea of breaking bread, eating with each other. You know, when you talked about radical love, that's connected to radical relationships and radical community, right? So how, with all of this information, all of these materials, all these resources we have available to us, how can we start to break down these walls to build a welcoming community for teaching artists while also providing steps for them to decolonize their work and you know, constantly question their work through an anti-racist lens, a black feminist lens. Like, how do we start to do that with our teaching artists in a K through 12 space or even outside of that space? I know that was a lot in that question. I'm sorry, I asked three questions in one. So you can pick one of those and you can answer them. Um, I can I can start. Okay. Yes, Ava. I think you're gonna always go first. A go first. So that's just you. Hey, you, okay. you always <laughs> I know Sam went first last time. So right. <laughs> it's all good. Um. So two things I'm thinking about. One thing is, uh, well, coalition building mm. uh, can be a really great resource and tool. So are there any types of back channel communications or online like digital platforms that you can build um, amongst artists where you cross share and then it's an opportunity to cross collaborate with each other. So, you know, you take your lesson ideas that you tried on in class or some type of material or resource that you found and you're able to dump it in there. You know, maybe you categorize based on grade band, um, some type of like art category or however you want to organize it, but keep that like digital, it's essentially like a digital archive that you can build where you're able to engage in cross collaboration and cross sharing. And then that also makes you feel like you're not alone in this too. Like you can start to see like as you coalition build just how many people are doing this because Education is super hard, just in general. Education and educators are also under attack right now, as we have been for a long time. And when we're able to build those coalitions, we're able to strengthen the work, even across and beyond like school district boundary lines, state boundary lines, like we're not alone in this. And so when we're able to cross share, um, it just strengthens our work. So that that's one. And then also thinking about like the interiors that you can build um, within your school or within your district or um, however you work, but what are the kind of interior channels that you can build where you're able to speak unapologetically and share without feeling like you have to put your armor on when you step out um, of that space, but what are those um, areas and spaces you can build that truly are centered around trust? Because trust is also a huge resource so who do you trust and who can you build those collaborations with? Thank you. And the word trust really stuck out and just coalition building. Yeah. And knowing where those coalitions exist um, or even the need for coalition. Like, I think that's important too. The fact that, you know, do we need to, to build this new tribe of people? Yes. Because education, as much as we don't realize it, it can be very isolatory which is why they can attack us much easier because they feel like we're alone. Yes. Anyone else? I think, I think it's two things that I saw. Um, one is I love, there's an org I work with back home um, and they did 
it's respect and they did like skits and plays around bullying and but we had they had an advisory group so anytime they made new material or just wanted a revamp they would do it and then go what do you think what are we missing and so staying in conversation with people who can help you see the pieces that you might not see or who can point out the things that you might not think about adding and, and subtracting and so for me that was an important part because it wasn't just them going into schools and doing this, but they consistently got feedback from the teachers who attended it and from just people in the broader community. So asking beforehand rather than um, afterwards and asking after because the people in that room might have a different opinion than the other people. So being in communication. The other thing I think is being in constant communication. Oftentimes when people have someone come in, they have this one project, they're gonna come in, do that project and then leave. And that doesn't allow for real partnership. So, hey, this is my syllabus for the year. Where else could I add some things in? These are some of the projects I was thinking about and not just outside. How am I connecting with the art teacher down the hall for my English lesson? We sometimes get so siloed in our departments that we don't even reach out and how can we then really help young people understand something in all of these different classrooms that they're in. And then that's not only gonna strengthen the education that they're receiving, but they're gonna not minimize the importance of one subject over another because all of them are interconnected. And nothing to add, yeah. they covered it all. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh my God. So you talked about collective collectivity, extending things. Some of this has to do with budgeting, right? Like the value of a teaching artist being in the space, right? Um, some of it has to do with relationships and partnerships. Some of it has to do with internal value. How do we as individuals value art? All types of art. Are we consumers of art? Do we go see and participate in art, dance, music, visual art? How are we? Like I find um, my background as an artist really informed a lot of my middle school teaching, like how I taught middle school and high school and how I even teach um, higher ed. Um, it's bringing music in, bringing those examples, uh, not just reading plays, going to see them. Um, like I just, had, I had a student in my intro acting class, we were doing Death of a Salesman. And she was like, oh, my friend is reading it in their English class and she told me this play is horrible. I was like, okay. So we, you know, did in class the way I do it in class. And the students were riveted because, you know, they acted it out. We were looking at different sections. We were analyzing the monologues and dream sequences. And she's like, this play is amazing. And I was like, so why do you think your friend hates it? That is a question. Like, how was it presented to them? And she was like, oh, she was just hand, it was just given to her to read on her own and to fill out, you know, to be prepared to talk about in class as a structure, right? Um, so one of the, I think we have time for two more questions. So one, so what I would love to talk about too is what specific materials, well, what are some examples of the materials either is an education project or Black Lives Matter school? Um, and I can talk about like what the Teacher Artist Guild has, they have this huge resource page. Um, what are some resources that can lend themselves to the very strategies you just proposed today? I can um, jump in on this and, and Ava and I are gonna share some slides in our breakout group with examples where you can see um, how people have incorporated art in their lessons. And I think this is where artists working with teachers can also help amplify the, the strategies and the approaches because as we know, young people love to be creative and it's often the first thing that gets cut um, when there's budget cuts. Uh, but one of the examples is an approach that people are probably familiar with called blackout poetry where young, where people will be reading a text. And so this was the examples we have are with um, Matthew Delmont's book on African-Americans during World War II. And the young people not only highlighted key words to create a poem from the introduction, they then had to create a piece of art to illustrate the poem they had just created. And so the results for that are relevant to a social studies class, to an English class and to art. 
and it was, um, you know, it gave young people a chance to to be creative, and they'll remember a lot more of what they what they've read. Um, we also have a lot of examples from elementary classrooms, or where we have had visiting artists. We've had go-go artists. We've had um, an artist that does um, linocut screen prints, and um, had uh, young people sort of picked what they wanted to work with to make their uh, screen prints. Um, but I think it's it's helpful to look at strategies that then a teacher can start working in and not have it as an extracurricular, but is directly incorporated with what they're learning. I can just add just a little bit. I, just going to the Zened Project website and going to the search bar and typing in like any topic or you know, anything that you're interested in, just typing that into the search bar, you're going to have a list of, of helpful resources that pop up. So that's served me well and served um, the teachers in my school district well, um, even in developing out our ethnic studies frameworks and um, high school course. Um, and also to like leveraging your student voice as um, an advocacy resource can be helpful too. So if there's considerations about budget and funding and, and things like that, like your voice is powerful 100%. And when school districts hear from multiple voices, it can oftentimes put a little bit more pressure um, to reconsider some budget and financial decisions. So one, reminding um, people in your networks that budgeting isn't just about dollar signs, but about values and putting money where your values are. So there's that. And then if you pose to your students just a simple question, like why is this art class important to you? And having them express that back through art that you can take that to whoever you need to take that to, that's multiple voices in art form that are advocating for this art class or project or whatever you're doing. And then you can also float that same question to the families of the students in your class. So what's been the impact on your family or on your child um, of this art class? So you can really amplify that out as well. Um, so just a couple helpful um, ideas. Thank I would you, just throw in one more thing. Um, art is throughout the whole building. And that for me is something that really shows uh, this isn't something that just happens in this one room in this one space. But when I walk down a hallway and I can see all the different ways that art's being incorporated in different classrooms and whether that's self-portraits that people are drawing, whether that's poetry, even and depending on the school, sometimes they'll have like whatever that month's theme is. So it'll be like Women's History Month and then they have all these different book covers. And how are we showcasing art everywhere so people can engage in it and broaden their idea of thinking art has to be in a museum art has to be this level versus art is constantly around us and being presented to us we just don't always name it art yes yes and we also uh at black lives matter school under the year purpose for april we have a, a lot of curriculum pieces still for black radical art Black Radical Artists and um, TAG has this wonderful interactive um, front page. You go under resources. And if you go under site and see, like you can see articles and blogs, but also too, I know this question, this question actually came up in our summer conference. How do you find the background information, the history, you know, what's happening with the, uh, the Teach Truth movement, what's happening with these bills and the new bill that just got proposed in Florida just two days ago, Bill 999 that's going to um, try to control DEI in public and private universities. And you know it's gonna be signed. I mean, I would love to say something different, but it is. And so because of that, how, how can I find out about these things that are happening, right? How can I use this to inform if I'm doing, if I'm coming in as a teaching artist and I'm doing African dance and I'm doing a specific type of dance from Botswana, yes, I have, teaching artists have a wealth of like historical information and data. So how can I share that with my host teacher, share it with the school, share it with the students, but also as a teacher, how can I find out those things? And a lot of those historical pieces, like Ava said, I swear Zen Education Project is like a teacher personal encyclopedia page. Like you just type it in and magic pops up and you're like, I'm a genius. Now I can read this and figure it out or I can find resources, right? So 
those are definitely some things happen. So let's take one last go round in this, in this, in the light of what we talked about, the 2020 uprise, what's happening in 2021, laws that are still happening, this state of fear that we are in, in the country. Um, how does that impact the importance of the presence of teaching artists in education right now? I, I could jump in just to say that I think, and I think everybody here, I'm sure is aware of this, that throughout history, art, artists have played two roles. One is to, to be messengers, um, to be truth tellers, um, and also to provide inspiration that, that art, that music, you always hear people during from the civil rights movement talking about that art wasn't, that the, the song gave them strength, that they sang, um, you know, to, to give them the strength in the face of the sheriffs and the face of the resistance that they faced. And so I think by bringing arts into the schools, you're bringing arts in at a time when it couldn't be um, more crucial and more essential really for the future of this country. People say to protect democracy, I would argue we're still building a democracy. So, but it's to protect that, that, that endeavor to, and it really is at a dangerous tipping point where the right is trying to ban already instruction was very limited in terms of what, um, as we know from textbooks, from the curriculum, but there had been a growing movement, as Tamara said in the introduction, of people being committed to teaching outside the textbook, to being truth tellers, and they really need artists uh, uh, as allies, both to help young people get the courage to continue and to learn from history about the role of art through, through murals, through poetry, through song, through all forms of expression, through theater, you know, the, the, that's usually with the, like with SNCC, people learn about the voting rights mobilization, but they often don't learn about the free Southern theater. So I think having, showing how the role of art throughout history is gonna be important for, for young people to learn about the tools that they can gain today. Yes, yes, thank you. Um, Ava, please go, then we're gonna actually, um, I have one question from the um, audience to pose to. Okay, yeah, I was just gonna, I mean, Deborah, I appreciate you talking about the the long histories of art. And just to remember the, the grander legacies that each of you are a part of is so beautiful, necessary, and important because art is what has driven communities forward. It's what's brought communities together. It's what's brought youth together. It's how um, various communities have organized and mobilized forward to fight for change. And so just remembering like who you are, really grounding yourself in your why, and just remembering that you're a part of these broader legacies that will continue to push forward um, for the futures that we deserve, but that our, our youth, our young people coming up to stand on our shoulders deserve. And just one thing I wanna add too is, we can be really intentional and strategic about the language that we're using. And so sometimes that looks like, you know, you might, they, they might tell you, you can't use a specific lesson in your class because it has to go through a formal process. Well, I'm not doing a lesson, I'm doing an activity or I'm bringing in a guest speaker or I'm having students create their own um, learning opportunities to teach each other. There's always been ways that we as educators have resisted and pushed forward. And so just hang on to that. Language is also power and we can use that to our advantage. Yes, yes. And question from Bailey, what activities have you done, if anybody in this group has done with young ones to assist with the decolonizing arts education um, with BLM schools? Um, I can actually give an activity. If somebody doesn't have an activity, if somebody in the group has an activity, please share and I will keep my activity for the breakup room. Well, just a quick one that I wanna share. Um, this was during BLM at School Week of Action, but it's something that I've continued forward. So I go and meet with small groups or even one-to-one -one, um, elementary students who are black. And you know, this is a school district where we have 2.5% black students and a very small percentage of black educators. And so I try to, you know, seek out the spaces where I can connect with um, Black students. And this was a conversation that I had with um, an elementary student, and she was just sharing about her experiences. And 
Um, I just kind of want to remind us, and it was a good reminder for me that it can be the little things. So that conversation was about her experiences. And um, in order to build trust, I put out just blank paper and markers on the table and said, we can draw and, you know, color together as we're having this conversation and getting to know each other. And I, she was like, what, what color is your jacket? Is it this color? And I, she held up a pink color and I was like, yes, it is. And then she was like, what's your name again? And she looked at my, my badge and, and I saw her like writing and she was like, what color is the chair that you're sitting in? And so she started drawing the chair. What she was doing was drawing me sitting there talking to her. And so it just showed me how important representation is. And I, I know that it's way beyond representation that's important, but where are the opportunities where students can express themselves and where you can build trust through art um, that's served as a, a tool for me so it, it can be the little things and even just in our interactions with students it doesn't even need to be a formal lesson or activity i'll add one quick project we did um, with my youth advisory board so it wasn't it was across demographics and we literally just made a giant white poster of what makes us feel powerful. And so we just wrote power in the middle and wrote all the different things that make us feel that way because it's hard sometimes to remember those. And then we had that hanging up. So when people were feeling like things were getting harder, more difficult, they had something that they themselves wrote, but also that their peers wrote. So maybe I can't feel that for myself right now, but I can lean into my peer who also this helps them feel powerful. And then collectively we can raise each other up. Thank you, thank you. So we're getting to the end of the panel and we did have some more questions. Oh, somebody had a comment about my background. So my background is an example of how Black Lives Matter School every year since 2018, we um, asked, a student artist to submit artwork um, for uh, a competition. And of course we saved artwork. So this is one of the pieces from a student um, that is behind me. Uh, and try to like highlight that work, even if it's like, you don't like quote unquote, you know, win, blah, blah. We use the work in our websites and give acknowledgement that way to kind of uplift um, the fact that they took time to, you know, to participate in the process. Um, when we get into the panel, uh, I, uh, I would like for all of us in our breakout rooms, uh, sometimes what has come up is how can we address the fears that new teachers have of being fired, isolated, ostracized, or bringing up activist content and strategies for, oh, I love this, courage building and allyship within school community. Or like Bettina Love, you know, finding your co-conspirators, because she's always like the allies, you know, know all the definitions and the terms and the books better than you. So you want to have somebody who's going to stand in the trenches with you, which is kind of a different, different definition sometimes. So I'd like to thank all the panelists. This discussion has been amazing. It's been important. Um, this is an important start. I'm so excited. Let me just say, let me take a minute before we go on break. I'm so excited this is happening. Because for those people that don't know me, I wear multiple hats. And sometimes I find myself dividing my, splitting myself like a grate to be one person in one space and to be another person in another space. But when I'm in spaces like this, I get to be my whole self. And that is always so warm and so welcoming. And I just love it. <laughs> And we are back. Tamara, that conversation was so lovely. And I have so much living in me. But before I kind of dive in to the things that stood out, how did it feel to moderate that conversation? Well, it was so powerful, like to stand in, in that space, right? Because often I am tasked with being like a panelist or one of the speakers. So it was really nice to sit um, with these amazing individuals who are doing such great work with their organizations, but also to sit in that space with people who have some connection to arts education, maybe more connection to K-12 education, and really 
creating those connections, right? You, you, I, I think it's something that I am very, very, very committed to and, and have been since I started teaching myself is this connection between teaching artists and K-12 educators. This connection between um, teaching artists, those who teach art, music, theater, dance in K-12 spaces and those traditional special education practitioners in K-12, like there is a huge community to be built, right? And sometimes we miss those opportunities because often the way, unless the teacher brings in the teaching artist, if the school brings in the teaching artist, it is just like the school does with everything else. It is a disconnect. It, it is not an opportunity for those two individuals to build community, I like to say, or to build a relationship that could really maximize the opportunity there, not just for them to learn from each other, but like, what does that look like when you expand that to the students? Yeah. And you really start out this conversation with, for me, um, you know, it, it's, you know, working in the spaces that I work in, none of this is new, but it was kind of sobering for you to lay it out in the way that, mm -hmm. you, did. you know, one, thinking about the murder of George Floyd and how it was so amplified and so raw in a time when we were all inside uh, yes. at the height of the COVID pandem pandemic. How um, we saw arts organizations write these beautiful letters of solidarity and the, um, the movements, like we see you white American theater, mm -hmm. others. And then this, um, you know, and I didn't realize how many there were, but the 40, 40, mm -hmm. 40 anti-history laws, anti-trans LGBTQ history, banning books, anti-CRT, which is critical race theory here in the United States. Um, and so, um, you know, and then, you know, the question from Miko Lee, which was how can we have conversations about anti-racism and these intersections um and 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 the risk that that you one could take if they are having these conversations right you know what are the risks does it impact funding um you know and how can we continue to have these prevalent conversations that are supposed to really impact how arts educators do the work Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. And and so, you know, can you talk a little bit about what that meant for you and 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 maybe a little bit of what it was like in that room to have that conversation, but also like the risk of having this event, really. Right. Like it's it's such a powerful time right now, right? Because depending on where depending on where our artists were zooming in from, or you know, they were zooming in from, they could literally be in a space where that conversation has already been deemed to be illegal, you know, has already been deemed to be um, breaking the rules. And when you have a space like Arizona, where the laws include fines up to $5,000, if you are found doing these things, um, every time I say that, I'm just like, Lord. Um, the, the whole idea is that I, I remember when it was just 12 states like our 12 pending, and I'm talking about pending laws. And then I remember from just May to June, May to August of 2021, they doubled in that exponential, like they exponentially doubled in that short period of time. You already were having teachers who were losing jobs. You were already, like it, it, you, it, <laughs> The idea to have the conversation about the very thing that makes this space America, because let's say that, I'm going to say it again for cheapsy, like to have the conversation that what makes this America, like to have that honest conversation, the good, bad, and the ugly, right? That part. For you to say that that conversation um, could make somebody upset or that conversation is deemed to be illegal or that conversation is deemed to be not um uh not uh not not what we should be doing right but then 
We are a country that prides itself on telling other countries and other pe people who live here that we are a country of change. Right. But that is the opposite of that because these conversations can actually teach our children, teach our teachers, teach our community, our parents, our families, that when you feel like, when you're like, wow, I just feel so overwhelmed. Why are these things happening at the same time? You know, maybe they didn't mean to do it. <laughs> no, it, it's purposeful. Right. And I think like, even the quote we opened up with Toni Morrison, the fact that this is a time, like this is the time for artists. And then what was she, like, once her other famous interview, I love the use the quote from this interview. She's like, when you take your race away, who are you? Mm -hmm. What are you left with? Mm -hmm. Are you left with, you know, how do you feel about yourself? You left with your sadness, your like, what are you? Because mm -hmm. we've created these spaces, right? And if anybody knows anything, when we clock the time of these movements, civil rights movement, black power movement, you know what's in, you know what marks that time? Art, songs, poetry, visual art, plays come out at specific times, mm -hmm. film, right? It marks the time. So mm -hmm. when you take that away, then what we're taking away from this new generation is their opportunity to mark their time with artistic expression. That's right. That's right. And there were some really, um, you know, I think that speaks a lot to, to what um, Sam at mm -hmm. BLM at schools was saying about this notion of mirrors and whiz and, and windows um, or sliding glass doors and this notion of collective value. And oh so if you're not yes. seeing yourself, the cultural affirmation piece, right? Mm -hmm. Alone, because I know I became an artist because I didn't see myself mm -hmm. in these spaces, um, in, you know, in the mainstream, in every facet of our existence there was certainly parts of my existence as a puerto rican that um you know that 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 you know that mainstream media loved to highlight which were not very affirming and so you know so to that end you know how are our students seeing themselves mm, and yeah. how are they and by virtue of legislation and by virtue of how educators are taught to teach um, mm -hmm. you know, you know, are they allowed and are they bringing, are they bringing mirrors or windows or sliding glass doors? Right. Um, because though you need to have those in there, right? Because it affirms, it affirms the classroom. Mm -hmm. It also affirms your power to push back when you think something just doesn't feel right. That's right. It empowers you to build relationships with the families around you. And for teaching artists, it's really important for us to build those families because education is very isolatory. Mm -hmm. And so these laws are, you know, th this, this pending doom is also even more serious feeling because most people feel alone. Right, right. And, you know, I loved this notion of, you know, where are you, I believe um, it was either, I think it was, it was either Deborah or Ava over at Zen Education Project mm -hmm. talking about this notion of where are you bringing students and who are you bringing your students to, um, which um, you know I think Ava brought that up, but Deborah also um, kind of underscored it with this notion of yeah, um, also the notion of teachers and how are you bringing mm -hmm. teachers into the community and integrating mm -hmm. them so that they understand you know, the communities that they're in, because quite often they're not from those communities. But, yes, you know, um, thinking about where you bring students and who you're bringing your students to and 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 what either the people or the artifacts, right? Mm -hmm. I was just recently at the National um, African-American Museum in D.C. with my daughter, and we were in an exhibit on Afrofuturism. And one of the things that I was not ready for um, but was very important was, um, you know, we saw three um, uh, space related and sci-fi related outfits. One of them belonged to Uhura from Star Trek. Mm -hmm. 
And one of them uh, belonged to uh, a black astronaut and I forget his name and I apologize for that. But the other was Trayvon Martin's spacesuit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, which broke my heart because my, my child was born around the time that we lost Trayvon Martin. But that became a catalyst for a conversation about mm. Trayvon Martin with my 11 year old, right? And so, um, and, 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 you know, to think about the stakes um, and, and the need for us mm -hmm. to bring uh, our young people into those folds and into those conversations at this critical time was mm -hmm. uh, so necessary. And, and that was absolutely living in me. Um, the other piece, and probably the piece that I want to, that I want to end this conversation in, because, you know, all of this is so heavy. Mm. It's, it's so heavy, but, um, but this notion of radical love and radical relationships and radical community just really sung for me, uh, because that is where we are truly abundant within mm -hmm. uh, our communities. And so um, how did having that conversation feel for you? And, and what kind of hope mm. did you leave that conversation with? And what kind of hope do you have um, for, for your colleagues and for the profession? Um, okay, it was Guy Buford. I just want to say that because I remember that exhibit. Yes. Um, I... So one thing about radical love and, and radical relationships is is one way. So one of my other hats that I wear is I I um am a supervisor often for student teachers who are pre-service teachers. And one of the things I try to get across to them, no matter where they are on their pathway when they start, is that radical relationships are important. And they're like, radical? I mean, what about just building relationships? I say, you have been taught about classroom management. Even as teaching artists, you know, we are the, the best teaching artist is the one who has the best classroom management, right? The one who can be left alone with the children. Let's just be real, right? But classroom management is the equivalent of putting a TV in the middle of a forest. It is not organic. It is not built upon anything that actually is connected to anything, which is why it often fails. When you think about spaces where students want to come, even in you know schools that are in not the best of conditions, you're like this classroom is always happy, always this. I remember there was a teacher I taught with years ago, probably earlier on in my first year. She was teaching in Chicago, actually, in the West Side, Chicago. And there was a teacher who found an old piano. She just started this school. She got her husband to tune the piano for her, and she played music every morning for them. And the kids would sing. These first graders, the same. Now she was not a music teacher. She was a traditional first grade teacher. But that piano, that opening poem, all this stuff, when I tell you those students ran to her class every time. And the school itself, you know, outside of the fact that we had a rotary phone and everybody else didn't have one, let's just put that there. It was crazy outside. But those students were like, yes, this is where I wanna be, right? This idea of community. It was the first time outside of my own mother who taught for 30 some years, that I saw community similar to what I thought that should look like, right? So one thing that was really hopeful was seeing all the comments in the chat. Um, there were there were people in the breakout rooms literally preparing meals while we were having conversation. And I just thought, this is such a warm and nurturing and necessary space, right? Yes, we are sharing materials and strategies but I believe everybody walked away from there with a new community to build on, a new tribe, so to speak, to reach out to. Mm -hmm. And that is what really gives me hope. It gives me hope that this conversation that we're looking forward to having this conversation again as part two to this conversation, yeah. um, um, because it's it's needed. People were like, I want to, this is, I, this is where I want to be. Yeah. Um, and that, gives me hope that no matter what laws are passed, that we are not giving up. Yeah. We have not given up hope in the midst of hopelessness mm. because that is exactly what it feels like sometimes. You know, I like to tell people, I'm like, I'm like an 
optimist pessimist like a, a hopeful pessimist like that's what I am because mm -hmm. I'm old enough to know that to see things repeat right. to have seen things repeat to see people retreat back into what they're used to after they've made these declarations of change right which is why I'm always like I need that change to go for about six years before I co-sign and give you a high five because then I know that you're truly committed right but in the midst of that, this conversation, people came ready to listen. People came ready to share some um, difficult stories they had. Um, people came ready to receive. And even the speakers, the panelists were bouncing off and receiving from each other, right? And that is something that is, is rare at times right there was it was a wonderful way to spend a Saturday and if, if the time flew by which just let you know that you know that what happened that day was supposed to happen exactly the way it was right and it was just a testament and a practice in in reality of that of that opening quote that came to me literally like the night before I thought about it, I was like oh I'm not gonna do it then I was like oh this may be just what we need to kind of really talk about. And it and it really, that that idea of what she's talking about, Tony Moore's talk was like throughout the entire mm -hmm. conversation. I love that. And that just also underscores the value of arts education as a way to dissect complex issues. Mm -hmm. And it is, it is still the way that I put myself in the shoes of people whose experiences are not my own. Yes. It is the way that I did it as a young person. It is the way I continue to do it as an adult. It is the way that I teach my own young person in my home how to do it. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and to your point about, you know, even the, the, the folks, the panelists within the group, bouncing ideas off of each other is that, you know, we, we collectively, you know, should never stop learning. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, I know this talk made me feel super hopeful for the field. And um, I want to thank you for spending some time with me today. And oh, thank you for uh, having me. And uh, and thank you for moderating that beautiful conversation. And I look forward to part two. Yes, 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 yes. It's the way we break bread together. So yeah. 100%. Well, everybody, thank you for joining us for the Why Change podcast. We will have all of the necessary links in the description uh, of this episode. And uh, we thank you for listening. Have a great day. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Why Change, the podcast for a creative generation. All sources discussed in this episode are located in the show notes. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Also, you can write us at info at creative-generation.org. We would love to hear your ideas, the topics you want to learn about, and why change matters to you. This episode was produced by Carla Estella Rivera. The executive editor is me, Jeff M. Pooling. Our artwork is by Bridget Woodbury. Our editor is Katie Rainey. This podcast theme music is by Distant Cousins. A special thanks to our contributors, co-hosts, and the team at Creative Generation for their support.